Before we get into this week's uh, X-Files Retrospective podcast, I wanted to say a few words. This was one of the first podcasts I ever recorded, and I was playing with the mic settings to try and reduce the noise, so there is a bit of an echo, and there are a couple of times when it gets quiet, but I think the actual content is good, and it is clear enough to hear for the most part. There's just a quick point around the 14-minute mark, and then another at the 23-minute mark or so and one more near the end, where it is a little bit hard to hear. But I think if you stick with it, you'll still enjoy it. And I assure you that those issues will not come up in later podcasts. Welcome to the second X-Files Retrospective Podcast. This week we're talking about Deep Throat. Not the 1970s film Deep Throat, but the second episode of the series titled Deep Throat. This was the first episode that was produced after they got the full season pickup. Prior to this, it was the pilot, it was untested, they didn't know if they were going forward. Now they do. They know they have a season. They may not have a second season, but they know they have a first season. That doesn't stop them from taking risks and doing things we don't normally see on television. So at this point, there's still some growing pains to go through. There's still some character development. So we're really not in the version of the X-Files that most people are familiar with. It's not going to be the one that hit the mass popularity. But there's some clear signs that that is where this is heading. And we see that coming. As of before, we keep that same structure of teaser opening credits and then the four acts. And again, the teaser sets up the mystery itself without introducing Mulder and Scully. In this case, the teaser shows a military police unit storming a home. A woman comes right up to the barricade saying, this is my home, what's going on? One of the officers on the scene explains to her that her husband has violated procedures, he has taken technology home that he's not supposed to have, and they're going in for him. He seems to have had some sort of psychotic break. They don't explain that, but they're going in, guns blazing, well not blazing, but the guns are ready, they knock the door down, these people are going in prepared for anything. And again, one of the things that sets the show apart is the level of detail. When they're going through this, it appears to be on location in an actual home, but they've still redressed it to make it the military family's home. So they're going through the lower floors, they're going through every room, they're up the stairs, they're down the hallway. Even in the quick glimpse of the little boy's room, it lasts maybe three or four seconds. We see the boy on screen once in the episode, it doesn't have any lines, but they've taken the time to hang model military aircraft from the ceiling. So right there, this is an environment where it feels like, yes, this is a strong family unit, and the boy is looking up to his pilot father. At this point, we don't even know for sure the guy's a pilot, but that's already in my head as the viewer, just because those model aircraft are hanging from the ceiling in the boy's room. So they do eventually find the man, but he's curled up wearing nothing but his underwear, covered in scabs. They're putting the guns down, saying he's going to need a doctor or something. Here we cue the opening montage for the first time. It's a very distinct and very memorable theme that doesn't fit into any top 40 categories. And the images themselves are not what we usually see in an opening TV series credit sequence. Usually the opening credits are clips of the shows, especially the first five or six episodes of the season. And then every new season, they start splicing in footage from a few more episodes as they've got them in the can. Not with the X-Files. This is just a barrage of bizarre and paranormal images it's a very blue-toned. A lot of them are fuzzy. There's phrases flashing up with government denies knowledge, paranormal activity. Even the stars themselves 
their establishing shots of who they are is, or is done by taking a push in on their VIID cards. The end of the opening credit sequence is very much in line with the tone of the show. First, we have a close-up of an eye opening. It's probably the clearest image in the entire opening montage, and it's the only one where we really have a lot of motion, and it's the only thing on the screen at a time. This is about opening your eyes to what's out there. Not that Chris Carter in the background believes a lot of the things he was writing about, but that's the X-Files world. It's basically saying, this is our world, but there's things going on that we're not aware of. It ends with the classic, lightning bolt comes down into this valley. As soon as that flash of lightning is done, the phrase, the truth is out there, is right there on screen. So again, it's really setting things up. We see that one still shot each, of David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson on their FBI ID cards as Mulder and Scully. Then we see just a very slow-paced montage. It's more like the Edward Moybridge early film than the true motion pictures that we have. So it's not even at that 24 or 30 frames a second that we're used to seeing on TV, depending on which TV standard you're using. But it's really more like three or four frames per second. We're just seeing just gaps between the frames. Not that it's you know accelerated motion or slow motion. It's we'll see one frame four or five times, and then it progresses to the next frame. From this point, we skip to a bar in the DC area. Scully is clearly not too thrilled about meeting Mulder in a bar. But he says there's something he wants to show her that he didn't want to show her at work. And the audience knows they're being watched. Now, a lot of us might recognize the man who's watching them. He's Jerry Harden. It's hard to recognize his face because a lot of us knew him best as the man who played Mark Twain in the Time Zero two-part episode of Star Trek Next Generation. When he speaks later, he's got that very distinctive voice. And this is another big turnaround in the series compared to that first episode. As I mentioned in that podcast, that pilot episode had some truly horrific guest stars. There were some terrible, terrible actors as part of this cast. Jerry Harden is not in that category. He absolutely nailed Mark Twain, and he was perfect in the role he has here. So anyway, cut back to Scully and Mulder. So they're sitting at a table in Mulder's briefing Scully on the situation. It turns out that the man we saw in the teaser has been missing now for four months, and his wife has reported it as a kidnapping. There's a history of pilots disappearing from Ellen's Air Force Base. Scully's even heard about it, too. The popular thinking is that they were shot down over Russia taking you know, photographs when they really shouldn't have been in that airspace in the first place. Mulder isn't quite convinced. You can tell there's something else up there. He says it's got a certain paranormal smell to it when Scully's saying, this is a little mundane. It doesn't sound like paranormal. Why are you interested? So anyway, he steps away from the table to use the men's room. This is one point where the set almost seems designed to serve the script rather than using a typical set. So this is the men's room that's got multiple facilities. You know, there's a couple of stalls in the background. There's a urinal. And yet there's a lock on the main door instead of just on the stall doors, which is pretty unusual. Anyway, so Mulder, we just cut into the bathroom and Mulder's walking away from the urinal. We see him rinse his hands, no soap, and then he uses these same hands to splash water in his face. Maybe it's just me, but that's you know, a little bit gross to me. A lot of that seems to be primarily, though, to motivate Mulder looking down. So he walks up to the mirror, then puts his face down to the sink of he's splashing water on it, straightens back up again. Now this is the first time he notices Jerry Harden. Jerry Harden is standing on the inside of the bathroom and addresses him by name, saying, Agent Mulder, leave this case alone. This is Mulder just caught off guard, is going, what? You know, Mulder's not willing to just take this man's word that this is not one of the battles you should be fighting. You've got a lot of work ahead of you. Don't attract the wrong attention at this time. 
Mulda tries to follow him, but a very large man hits the bathroom door between the two of them. Mulder loses sight of him. Now, at this stage, there's still not a lot of trust between Mulder and Skelly. Mulder does not trust Skelly with all the information he has at any given time. This is a prime example. He comes out of the bathroom, doesn't say a word about this very unusual encounter he's just had. After this, Skelly's doing some research about this Ellen's Air Force Base, finds out that this is a mecca for the UFO nuts. She calls Mulder at home going, wait a minute, what are you doing? Are we in this case for the right reasons? And this is another prime example of a couple of things that really set the X-Files apart. First of all, a level of respect for the audience. As the audience watching this, when Mulder's having a conversation, we hear the clicks on the line. Mulder reacts to the clicks. He looks out the window. We see a then there. He says, I don't want to talk about it unless line moves on. We don't get him hanging up saying, oh, the phone is bugged. We don't see him looking for the bug. We don't see him checking any of that out. It's assumed the audience knows what's going on. It's probably a pretty safe assumption, but not a lot of shows are willing to make that assumption. They would have said the phone is bugged in some way right at this point. The other thing that sets it apart is, again, the level of camera work and the choices they're making. So there's a couple of different ways that you could change perspective in the camera. You can physically move the camera, or you can just zoom it in. If you physically move it, that's a push. Again, if you're zooming in, that's a zoom. The advantages of the zoom is that it's a lot quicker and a lot easier to manage. The camera's in focus once, you just do the zoom, it stays focused on the same depth. So if it's focused on David Duchovny and you zoom, it stays focused on David Duchovny, makes it look like he's approaching the camera. But the way the zoom works is by compressing distances. So it's cheaper and it's easier, but it also will make it look a little bit like the back wall is closing in on him. That's why you don't want to do some extreme zooming, because it seems to distort the general appearances of the set, unless that is the effect you're going for, as Hitchcock did so beautifully in Vertigo. The advantages to the push are that you don't get that distortion in distances. It's literally the camera moving towards the actor or the actress. The difficult part with that one is that the camera needs to be on some kind of track. It needs to be mounted. You have to be adjusting the focus all the way through. It's basically a more expensive shot, a more complex shot, and a more difficult shot to set up. You do have a couple of options with Steadicams, but then you need Steadicam operators. These are basically people who are wearing the 200-pound camera as they're filming. I'm not sure whether this was a Steadicam or a tracking shot, but they did not go for the zoom. They did not distort perceptions. When Mulder hears the clicks on the line, the camera moves towards him. It also changes the angle slightly, tilting back a bit so we get a better look at Mulder's face. As he's reacting, we know he's heard something is going on. Again, it's just really shot, more like a movie than like your typical TV show. So now Mulder and Scully make it out to Idaho. It's the second state that we visited in the course of the series now, aside from Washington. But it's the second state that has an actual investigation. And again, we see much stronger guest acting. The woman who plays Mrs. Buderhaus is doing a pretty phenomenal job as a district wife. She's very emotionally distraught throughout the episode, and we can see it all. This is when you find out her husband has been deteriorating for two years, and there's been similar consequences with other men and other pilots. So Mulder takes on a lot more of our point of view in this episode. Last episode, Scully was clearly our point of view character. This time, Mulder gets a lot more time as our point of view. This is the case. They go to visit another family that's had a similar circumstance, and Mulder's a point of view character. We know Mulder is overhearing a conversation between the two women, 
when not Mrs. Booterhouse, but the other woman is saying, really bringing the FBI into her home, what are you thinking? Her husband has been just mentally destroyed, but she still supports the military, saying they know things we don't. She trusts their ideals. Basically, she trusts the military. Mulder, at this point, does not. So as they see the man and they're leaving, Scully's trying to explain this all away from a psychological condition. This is one of the moments where I think it was more done to be this dark role for Scully, was to be the voice of the skeptics in the audience and to produce those alternate theories, and not because it was completely in line with the characters. I mean, Scully is a medical doctor. She did her undergraduate work in physics. Mulder's the one who studied psychology in Oxford. Why is not Mulder the one who's coming up with it and pulls the saying, it could be this, but it doesn't fit because. Instead, he's the one just shooting Scully down as she's throwing out the ideas that with Mulder with his background should be having in the first place. It's also a great way to set up the rapport that we have. Because as they're leaving, they run into a newspaper man. Uh, or at least a man who claims to be from the newspaper. We find out later that's not the case. And Mulder gets some information from him about where to go you know, see some UFOs and talk to the UFO nuts. He hands them to a very touristy-themed little cafe where the woman there says that she took one of the UFO photos behind the counter. And, you know, Mulder's playing it up. He's, he's in there, and you can tell Scully's getting tired and exasperated. Calls him a sucker for spending 20 bucks on one of the last limited print photos. She heads out, decides to wait for him outside, while Mulder keeps talking to the proprietor, who says she took the photo of the UFO on her back porch. After this, Mulder comes up to meet Scully outside the restaurant because she was waiting there for him outside she notices that ellen's airbase isn't on her government issued map and Mulder says oh yeah i know and then he reveals while well, he was talking to this waitress and getting not just the photo but also getting her to give him a map to where they're going so once again we see evidence that he is withholding information from her so Mulder's got much more access and much more knowledge of things than scully does so they follow his map and out in a field. And it's when we get there, it's bright daylight, probably late afternoon. And then from there, we dissolve into night. Uh, dissolve in film terms, most people are familiar with fade out and fade in, where fade out the image dims until it's black. Fade in as it comes from black and comes back. Those are common going in and out of commercials. Dissolve it when, it's, when it goes, fades out from one scene and fades into the other simultaneously, so there is no black. It's just one comes and dissolves through the other. Anyway, it dissolves to the middle of the night. Scully's sleeping in the vehicle. A sonic boom takes out the rear window of the car. This wakes her up. Mulder comes running down saying, Scully, you got to see this, drags her up the hill. There's these lights doing impossible maneuvers. There's no known aircraft that can do things these lights are doing. A couple of things happen here. For one, Mulder says, they've been at it for half an hour. So basically, he's been watching this amazing night show that proves what he's trying to prove and left Scully asleep in the car. So there's still there's still this feeling that we're getting where Mulder sees this really as his quest and his quest alone. And Scully's just along for the ride. He's not sure how long she's going to be there. It's, you know, he's hoping that she'll help, but he's clearly not sold on the idea that they're going to be working together for the same goals in the long term. But, you know, Scully disregards that. She's too amazed by these lights, and she's saying, well, they can't be aircraft. No aircraft can move like this. 
It might be lasers projected on clouds. It might be this or that. Once again, we see signs of the respect they have for the viewing audience. There's two lights take off at super high speed. This time, a sonic boom is involved. So they take off. We hear the boom. The audience is trusted to know this only happens with physical aircraft. They don't go, oh my god, those were aircraft. It's just, here's the boom. Scully turns to Walter and says, oh my god. And then they leave it. It's up to the audience to put the clues together. They see a third light. This one's moving much more normally because it's actually a helicopter coming to chase them off the site. So they're running. While they do, they see a couple of teenagers running off the, out of the field as well. And they catch up with them, help them hide until the helicopters go away. And Alon says, okay, you two are coming with us. Now, a lot of time has elapsed here. So I almost think that the time lapses that we have at this point were time lapses that were designed basically to accommodate the story and accommodate the shooting conditions that they have. Because when they're on the site, the caption at the bottom that labels the time of day labels it at about 9 p.m. When they take the two teenagers, one of whom is played by Seth Green before anyone really knew who Seth Green was, they take them to a cafe and feed them to get their story out of them. That's labeled at 5.02 a.m., where they're in this Eric's Cafe having multiple burgers. Why is it 5.02 a.m.? Because in the next shot when they're dropping off at home, it's bright daylight. It's got to be close to sunrise because there's not much to do after that cafe scene. So I really think the only option they had for shooting a cafe was at night, and the only option they had for shooting the drop-off at home was in daylight. So they just changed the dates on those two scenes to match. It would have been nice had they been able to take that late-night scene where they saw the lights flickering in the sky and push it to, I don't know, you know, 3 or 4 a.m., something to let us know, oh, it is very late by the time this happens, and then just help other things line up a lot better. In any event, they're in this Eric's Cafe, as the two of them are basically giving Mulder all the answers he's looking for, saying, yeah, they're out there all the time, this is the first time the helicopter came for them, but those lights in the sky match exactly that picture of the triangular UFO he bought in the cafe, that's them. And Gillian Anderson's acting is really coming through strongly in this episode. David Duchovny is most of the way to the Mulder well familiar with, but he hasn't quite gotten all the nuances down yet, so you can you can see looking back that this has to be one of the early episodes. He hasn't completely gotten into the group. Gillian Anderson has it down very well already, and just her slightly amused smile, and you could tell she knows these guys are stoned. She's just sort of humoring them all, doesn't really put any stock in what they're saying, given their current mental state. And after Mulder drops them off at home, and Scully says, you believe every word, don't you? He'd say, well, why wouldn't I? And she starts going on, well, if I were that stoned, yada, yada, yada. And again, great rapport between the two of them. When she starts, if I were that stoned, his response is, oh, if you were that stoned, what? And, you know, digging in, a little bit playful there, but still respectful. But just the way Anderson portrays this scene, the smile on her face, just the slightly patronizing tone, she's almost coddling. You could tell she's, in some ways, she's seeing him as, you know, like a 10 or 12 year old boy, and it's, she's taking it upon herself to raise him and help him get over these little childless fantasies that he has. This is when, again, Mulder pulls out more evidence than he was sharing with Scully early on. 
It shows her photos taken from other sites, including Area 51, claiming to show UFOs. These same pictures show the same triangular aircraft that were in the photo shot at the cafe. This guy's a little hesitant, saying, well, these photos don't really prove anything. They're not very clear, but they keep going anyway. Some of that could have been just the dialogue was written before the props were finalized. Because the photos that the audience sees are clear enough that you have to admit, yeah, they're similar. This isn't just your standard blurry elliptical UFO. These are very clearly triangular shaped. In any event, it's Scully at this point who manages to get Mulder refocused on the case. She's the one that points out, we're not in town to investigate UFOs. We're in town to investigate the missing Colonel Buderhaus. They end up back at the hotel. She checks messages. Mrs. Buderhaus called when her husband was returned last night. They go to check it out. And now Mrs. Buderhaus is extremely upset. From her perspective, this is not her husband. They go in. Mulder tests him to the point of irritating the man, but he knows all the personal data. He knows birthdays, children's names. He knows information about everything that's relevant to his home life. When Mulder tests him on things that, as a pilot, he should know immediately, even Colonel Buderhaus is freaking out because he realizes he should know this and doesn't. And why doesn't he know this? And also pushes Mrs. Buderhaus off, off the end. She starts screaming. So they're heading out again. When they're on the street, Mulder says he thinks the military has gone through and selectively erased memories from this man's brain. Scully saying that's not possible. Mulder reveals his whole theory where this is not an alien craft, but rather human technology refined over 50 years using technology found in the Roswell crash. So as they're leaving the site, they end up getting run off the road by base security who destroy their evidence, destroy everything. They go back to the hotel. Mulder's not ready to give up on this. There's something going on, and he wants his answers. He wants the truth. And Scully agrees there's something going on. She doesn't agree with Mulder about what it is. But she says, yes, there's something going on here. But she also says, the military has the right to keep secrets for the good of the country. We don't know enough to know it. That's not what, exactly what they're doing. We were here to solve a kidnapping, which has resolved itself. We need to leave now. Let's go do something else where we can have some shot at success. So, again, Mulder shows he does not yet trust Scully. His reaction is, okay, fine, I'm going to have a shower. We'll meet you there. He doesn't go to the shower. He goes to the rental car, takes off. Seth Green and his girlfriend show him to the field and the base and the hole in the fence, give him directions for how to get in to get the information he's looking for. Mulder makes his way back onto base. He gets up there. He waits in the trees during daylight hours, Heads out there in the middle of the night. He sees one of these aircraft very, very clearly, hovers directly above him, and then is captured almost immediately. He's gone overnight. We cut back to the hotel first thing next morning. Scully can't get any outside lines anywhere from her hotel room. She goes to the main office. She can't do it there. Comes out, finds the guy who said he was a newspaper reporter. Between his behavior and the radio calls that Scully overhears, she realizes that's not who he is. Now, the audience already knows he's not a newspaper guy. We saw him being referred to by the codename Redbird when Mulder and Scully and the two teenagers were in the cafe. He was watching them from outside. Scully figures it out now, realizes that, beats him back to his car, pulls his gun out of the glove box, and basically holds him hostage as leverage to get Mulder back. This does eventually work, but not until the base medical team have managed to wipe out Mulder's memories. I'm done exactly to him, 
what was done to Colonel Buderas. They end up heading back to Washington, where Mulder knows he's got missing memories. Scully's saying, we've got no documentation, no proof of any kind. Let's move on to the next case. So, and the episode ends with Mulder running a track, burning off steam, which is a habit we know he's in. That was how he's burning off steam when he couldn't sleep in the pilot. And he's approached on the track by Deep Throat again, who basically comes with a warning, and it sets up the relationship very nicely, which turns into a major thread in many of the upcoming episodes. Deep Throat is advising care and discretion and telling Mulder that he can help, but only when it's in my best interest to do so. So we know exactly what's going on. Well, not exactly what's going on here, but we do know Deep Throat is sympathetic to Mulder, but he's really looking out for himself, which is basically laying flat on the table. Okay, Mulder has an informant, but is this an informant we can trust? Is he really going to be putting Mulder down the right path? And it ends with Mulder saying, well, why are you helping me? What's going on? Which Deep Throat answers with a question. He says, why are there those like you who believe in alien technology and alien visitations on Earth and alien life on Earth not dissuaded by all the evidence to the contrary? Mulder says, because the evidence to the contrary is not entirely dissuasive. Deep Throat says exactly who's walking away. The final exchange of the episode is Mulder saying, they're here, aren't they? Deep Throat turns around and says, Mr. Mulder, they have been here for a long, long time. And just keeps right on walking. Leaves Mulder just standing there in the middle of the field staring. He's not really sure what to do from here. Cut to credits. So this is the second episode in a row where our basically sci-fi police procedural doesn't have a complete sense of closure. So in both cases we know something has happened. There's enough explanation that the audience feels they understand what has happened. But there's no justice or comeuppance for the characters responsible. They've basically been allowed to get away with what they've been doing. This lack of complete closure is going to be one of the distinct attributes of the X-Files. It's something that we're going to be seeing in the majority of the episodes, in a very large majority of the episodes. But at the same time, it's also something that really sets it apart. It's very hard to convince a network to do an episode that doesn't have closure let alone to do 20 out of 25 episodes in a season that don't have a strong sense of closure. It's a risk as far as the networks are concerned. The typical mentality is appeal to the broadest audience you can, which means try not to offend any demographics. Explain things to everyone so they don't have questions, they're not feeling confused and insulted and not wanting to come back. And when, it, when possible, or more times than not, Give them a happy ending. Whereas the X-Files doesn't so much have happy endings as it just more lacks downer endings. A lot of them are middle of the road. As I said, as viewers, we have enough information that we feel we do understand what's going on here. We know that the military has been experimenting with very advanced aircraft. We know that the pilots are not standing up to it. We may or may not agree with Mulder's theory about why these aircraft are so advanced, but we know this is what's messing up the pilots. This is some of the technology this military has. That does not get out into the world. Nobody realizes that except the viewer and Mulder and Scully. But that's still what we have. That's still what's established. So it, it's just enough closure for the audience to keep going. But it's not completely closed. 
that is going to be something that's a very, very common theme. So that basically wraps up Deep Throat. Join us in another two weeks for the third episode of the X-Files, Squeeze. Now, this is going to be the first Monster of the Week episode. There's a couple other firsts involved that are significant on the production side of the X-Files. But we'll leave that discussion for two weeks' time. Thank you, and join us again. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. The rest of this podcast, copyright Bureau 42, 2013.